Well, thanks so much for having me this weekend. Uh, it's been a real treat to be here. Thanks for making me feel so welcome. Uh, it's been lots of fun too. Um, I've really had a bit of a holiday uh, coming away this weekend, so it's been great. And really encouraging to see uh, you know, God's work amongst you and always wonderful to meet you know, groups of Christians who are on fire for the Lord and really excited about that. So, um, yeah, that's been a real encouragement. And thanks to our readers who've done a great job this weekend too, haven't they, really? It's been uh, very great to follow along. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, if you've got your Bibles open, keep your Bibles open. Uh, Zechariah 5 and 6, there we go. Uh, how about I pray again as we come to look at this? Let's pray. Um, Father, we uh, thank you for the chance to take this time out from the busyness of our lives, uh, to meet together as your people and uh, hear from you. Uh, Father, thank you for the encouragement that this weekend has been. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll continue to um, use your people to that we might spur one another on in love and good deeds. And this morning as we um, hear your word again, we pray that we'll be reminded of what you're doing in the world and what it means to be your people and what we should be building. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I mentioned yesterday, I think these uh, visions of Zechariah are a little bit like uh, apocalyptic literature, which we find in the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Revelation, uh, which is essentially painting pictures with words. That's what these visions are doing, giving us pictures of God's coming kingdom. But you have to really stand back from the picture to appreciate it. Um, as we look at these uh, visions of Zechariah with his lampstands and pipes and women in baskets, uh, we're meant to, I think, visualise in our mind what's going on here and, um, uh, and to puzzle over them. I think they're meant to be a bit of a puzzle. Uh, we see that sort of yesterday with Zechariah. What are these? What are these, my Lord? You know, we can't, we're, asking this, we're meant to ask the same kinds of questions. We're to see things that uh, we may not understand on the first reading. We're to keep coming back and read over, read, keep rereading them until we have that, you know, the aha, that's what it's all about. That aha moment is what, uh, what, we, what, we, what we want. Uh, but as we puzzle over what these visions are, are doing, we, I think, I think partly what they're designed to do is to draw us in as well. You can't just, well, you can read through it and just say, oh, that was too difficult and, and move on. But that's not what they're meant to do. You're meant to be intrigued and come back and, and uh, read them again. They're a bit like Jesus' parables at this point, I think. Uh, they draw us in, ask, uh, and, and, and once we're sucked in, they actually they ask us questions. Rather than us asking the questions about them, what they mean, the, the, like Jesus' parables, they're asking questions about our lives, about our allegiances, and um, uh, I think that's the beauty of them. Um, I've been sucked in anyway. (laughs) Well, these visions of uh, chapters 4 and 5, we looked at 4 yesterday, but the the three visions of chapters 4 and 5, that are in chapters 4 and 5, all have this theme of houses. I don't know whether you noticed that. Yesterday, it was about, in chapter 4, it was the building of the, the house of the Lord the temple, that Zerubbabel would do that, not by might, not by power, but by the Lord's spirits. Uh, If you look at chapter 5, it's about the house of the thief and the one who swears falsely. And if you look in verse 4, this scroll will go out and enter their houses and their houses will be completely destroyed. 
See the mention of house there in verse 4? And then in the, the next vision, the seventh vision, the woman in the baskets, there's this basket that is then taken off to Babylon. And you see in verse 11, a house is built for it. Uh, so you can see we're continuing our building theme, aren't we? The houses, the various houses that are in these visions. And these houses are all connected with God's coming kingdom and what it means to live for the Lord in the light of that. And I think what these visions are doing are really asking us about what house we are building. What are we spending our lives building? What's, what's our energies going into? It's like Jesus' parable of the wise and the foolish builder. I think these, these visions ask us, what is the foundation? What are we building our lives on? What will be our legacy once the storm has come? Essentially, I think what they're showing us is that there's two ways you can build, like two ways to live, two ways to build your life, two ways you can go about building your life. So that's what I want to see this morning, I hope we'll see this morning as we uh, look at these last three visions of Zechariah. As we saw yesterday, chapter 4, building the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, not by might, not by power, by my spirit, but with the temple in uh, Jerusalem being built, um, and God coming to dwell amongst his people once again, there's an opposite movement in these next two visions. So in this next vision, in chapter 5, Zechariah sees a flying scroll going out into the land. Uh, let me read that again. Uh, verse 1, I looked again, there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long, 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that's going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I'll send it out. and It will enter the house of the thief and the one who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. So this, this scroll is... Huge. It's immense. It's not a usual scroll, this one. Uh, the dement- it's, it's a bit like a, a, a flying billboard. Or think of those helicopters that take this, the, the sign through the sky for all to see. Um, no one can say that they haven't seen this scroll or its contents. Uh, it seems to be written on two sides as well, uh, which rep- seems to represent... I think what it represents is actually the scroll of the book of, of the law of Moses uh, with its uh, requirements written on both sides for all to see. Uh, one of the reasons I say that is because one of the things about the book of the law of, the, of Moses is that it also contained curses for those who uh, failed to obey God's law so that they might be warned to, to repent and turn back. It also contained blessings for those uh, who uh, obey the law and they will experience the blessings of God. But... The curse seems to be what's connected here. Here is the curse of the law going out across the land. And what is it doing? It's going out and bringing the houses of those who disobey the law of the Lord crashing down on their heads. The reference to the thief and the one who swears falsely, that is, they they don't keep their word. They say one thing and do another. They break down, you know, relationships break down when you don't keep your word uh, in business and in family life. Uh, This is the one who's dishonest, doesn't do what they say. 
But these aren't people who've just done it once. The way they're described here suggests that this is a a settled pattern of behaviour. These are people who repeatedly thief and repeatedly don't tell the truth. When confronted with it, they refuse to repent. And what it's saying is that those who live in the community of God's people who continue to reject his ways will eventually be driven out of his kingdom. They will eventually uh, suffer the judgments of the curse of the law, uh, which will be their, what they've built, their houses, which probably represent the profits of their uh, business dealings, uh, will come crashing down on their heads. Now, we also think of the... These practices are fundamentally antisocial, aren't they? When you tell lies, when you steal from others, you're robbing, you're not loving your fellow citizen, you're not loving your fellow community member, and communities break down with this kind of behaviour in it. But as bad, bad as that is, these are also God's covenant community. These are the people to whom God has given his law and called them to be separate from those around about them, a light to the nations. Uh, so that as people looked at Israel, they'd say, yeah, we want to be like them. We want to know their God. But these people were bringing God's name into disrepute by this behaviour. It was fundamentally a rejection of the Lord. And it was a continued pattern of behaviour. And so the Bible understands... Uh, see, we think the evildoer is the one who does really bad things, but the Bible understands the, the evildoer is the one who's rejecting him. And that's even more serious. There's no greater evil than rejecting the one who made us and bought us and, and owns us. This vision has a message that we don't really want to hear, uh, but it's certainly true. And that is that if you've spent your life in rebellion against God and his words, then you've spent your life building a house that will provide you no refuge on the day when God returns. It's a warning that on the day that God's kingdom comes, there'll be no escape. You can run. You can run into your house and seek security there and refuge, but it will come crashing down on your heads. God will not only destroy evil in this world, but he will also destroy the evildoer. He will root them out of his kingdom. There will be no excuses. Those who continue to rebel against God, that's why I say it's a settled pattern of behaviour here, is those who reject the Lord will have no place in his kingdom. So that's that's, that's the sober message of the, of the um, sixth vision. The seventh vision in, cha- in the second half of chapter, chapter 5 is similar. There's a similar movement uh, in this vision. Here we go, um, the houses in Babylon. Let me read this, beginning of this again. An angel who was speaking with me came forward and said to me, look, look up and see what's appearing. I asked, what is it? He, he replied, it's a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the lands. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her down back in the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. And I looked up, and there before me were two winged women with wind in their wings, and they had the wings of a stalk, and they lifted this basket up and took it off. We'll come back in a moment and look at the rest of that. But what is this vision of? The basket is literally an ephah. Which is, which is a measuring basket, about 20 litres. It, it had, if you look in the Old Testament, associations with uh, worship in the temple, but also with trades. You would use the ephah to measure out grain that was used in, um, in trade and often was associated... One of the, uh, uh, the charges is often to have an honest ephah 
that you would that you, you, what you've bought is what you're actually getting uh, in the in the in the baskets. Uh, but this basket um, uh, it, it has an inter- has a woman inside it, and it's a little bit difficult. You couldn't fit a real life woman into a basket of uh, twenty five liters, could you? That's a bit of a grotesque image, really. Uh, but there's a suggestion that what this is is not so much a woman, but um, uh, an idol. Uh, that, uh, uh, that's an Asherah idol, uh, which actually sounds like the word here that's used for wickedness in the original Hebrew. Uh, the, the, the wickedness, this is wickedness, sounds like Asherah. Rasha is evil. Asherah is uh, this, this idol here uh, that um, uh, was, 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 a, was used amongst the Israelites, sadly, before the exile, but seems to represent wickedness, um, Serving, serving gold and and uh, and wealth rather than serving Yahweh Himself, and um, it's what it seems to be saying here is that uh, uh, wickedness represented by this idol will be shut up in the basket and carried out of God's kingdom. But look who also carries it in verse nine, as we saw it was these women with wind in their wings, with wings like those of a stork who carry this basket in verse 10. Uh, They carry it in in verse 11 to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. And when the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. The language there, set there in its place, is the language that's also used with setting up an idol in other places in the Old Testament as well. So that seems to be another reason for seeing this woman as some kind of uh, representation of idolatry and everything that takes people's hearts away from God. I think what it's saying is that when God comes to establish his kingdom, wickedness and idolatry also will be driven out of his kingdom, carried far away. And the stork is an appropriate bird. Not that these are storks. These are women with storks' wings. That's an appropriate uh, bird because it... um, I think I've got a picture there. There they are. (laughs) Uh, You know, think of the stork. It's got long wings, powerful wings for a long journey taking this all the way back to Babylon. It's also an unclean bird, according to the Jewish law. But I think the significance is where it's being taken to. Uh, it's being taken back to Babylon. Or if you look in your... The footnote says uh, Shinar, uh, which is the place in Genesis chapter 11 where they built the Tower of Babel. Shinar, uh, this Tower of Babylon. So this, this house is built to house evil, wickedness, idolatry, back in Babylon, back where it belongs. Go back to where you came from, is what is being said here. And there's many, it's intriguing too, um, there's many elements in this vision too that uh, suggest that the whole vision is a bit of a parody on Israel's own experience. Uh, if you're... Remember, yes, I was talking about how when God's judgment finally fell on the city of Jerusalem, the prophet Ezekiel had this fantastic vision of the the throne chariot of God, which moved out of Jerusalem and slowly by stages left the city, representing the glory of the Lord that had departed from the city. And if God was no longer there to protect it, to dwell in the midst, then that was the, the certain judgment which ended up coming. So Ezekiel has this vision of the glory departing on a throne chariot away from the city. Okay? 
Uh, all of this is part of the, 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 the actual representation of God that we find in Exodus. Uh, remember when Moses has to build the tabernacle. We'll have the craftsmen build the tabernacle. The, the tabernacle was where God dwelt amongst his people. And in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenants with the two cherubim, these mighty angelic creatures with huge wings that sat over the, the Ark of the Covenant where, where God actually dwelt in the Holy of Holies and the Ark was his seat, his throne, uh, that, that was the, 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 the gateway into heaven itself. Uh, this is some of the symbolism that's associated with, the, with God's presence in the tabernacle. It's interesting, in this vision here, the phrase, the cover of leads, that we see in verse 7, sounds very much like the Hebrew word for mercy seats. Hebrew word for mercy seat is kofretz. A cover of lead is a kikaroferetz. So the cover of lead sounds a little bit like the mercy seats. The two cherubim of the ark are paralleled by the two stalked winged women. Whereas God was enthroned on the ark, this woman sits beneath the cover of lens. And as God's house, his tabernacle, his temple, is built in Jerusalem, and as he returns, as we've seen in visions 1 to 4, uh, well, 1 to 5, including chapter 4, as God returns to Jerusalem, here we have a, a parody of wickedness being driven out uh, by anti-cherubs with an anti-ark to an anti-Jerusalem. It's the opposite movement. Can you see the, the, the imagery, what this might have meant for the, the Jewish people who had all this symbolism in their heads? It's fascinating. See, there's a movement, I think, in these visions. Uh, we see the... the, 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 the four, this, this comes from Barry Webb's commentary, which is an excellent commentary on uh, Zechariah. If you want to get into what the book means... Um, I spent a year studying the book uh, before Barry's Webb's commentary came out and I had all these questions and puzzles, puzzles, and then I read his commentary and I had those, that aha moment. Of course, that's what it means. Yes, yes, excellent, excellent commentary. He, he has this picture in it. Uh, vision one is, remember the, the, the surveillance horses going out over the land, finding it's all at peace? This isn't good because this is a world that's in opposition to God. Then we see... God coming, the temple's going to be rebuilt, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. Uh, the, the, the two leaders, Joshua and, and Zerubbabel, Joshua will be a, uh, is, is recommissioned to serve in the temple. Uh, Zerubbabel uh, will build the temple. As God comes back to Jerusalem, we see in the next three visions that sin is driven out. Sin within the community, the, remember the scroll, God will come and judge that. And he will remove everything that's opposed to him. All the idolatry, the wickedness will be taken out. As God returns, this is what will depart in, a, in, in the opposite movements back uh, to where it came from, to Babylon. And uh, we'll see in a moment that things are set at rest. So um, it's interesting too to tease out a little bit what the significance of Babylon in the Bible. Uh, I mentioned just before that uh, Babylon, the first mention of Babylon is back with the Tower of Babylon, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Essentially, what we see there is that Babylon represents 
human civilization that's in rebellion to God. The Tower of Babel, mankind rallied together with all their technological prowess and and built this tower to storm heaven, to make a name for themselves. They used their technology, their ingenuity to bake bricks and mortar and, and they were very clever. The problem wasn't so much that they were building a tower, but they were doing it in opposition to God. God had said, fill the earth. They thought they could unite together and take heaven themselves. See, Babylon in the Bible, though, is attractive. That technology that we see being used in Genesis 11 is, is, is portrayed throughout the Bible in association with with Babylon, the great wealth that comes from our human ingenuity to be able to get on and master the worlds. But Babylon has a, a negative message because uh, what Babylon represents is our attempts as humanity to do this without reference to God. Babylon itself was one of the ancient wonders of the world. Think of the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Babylon was a city that was magnificent. I don't know whether you've, uh, anyone's been and seen these. Anyone know where that is? Uh, that's in Berlin. Uh, but these, this is called, these tiles are the actual tiles that were recovered from uh, the, what's called the Ishtar Gate uh, in the ancient city of Babylon. These were ceramic tiles that the, that the Babylonians had baked and put them on their city. This is, the archaeologists have collected them all and then recreated it uh, back in Berlin. But you can imagine this kind of, this is in a museum, but you can imagine this, these tiles being on a city wall, out in the sun, gleaming. You can see all the, uh, the artwork on it as well, with the horses and the chariots. See, that might have been where uh, Zechariah got some of his ideas from as well. Um, uh, he's come back out of Babylon uh, with all these representations. But, but this, is, this is incredible ingenuity, isn't it? This is showing the might, the wealth, the power of this ancient city, this ancient civilization of Babylon. It was attractive. It was human ingenuity at its best. But it was opposed to God. And God eventually judged Babylon. As mighty and as powerful as Babylon seemed, God reduced it to nothing. But what Babylon comes to represent in the Bible is all human civilization that's opposed to God's. At this point, it's very much like our own Western civilization, our own Western society, the, the glamour and the glitz, the, the technology and the entertainment, the structures of power, government, business, Wall Street, Macquarie Street, that kind of Hollywood lifestyle that we see on our televisions, the, the celebrity cribs you know, with seven garages, seven cars, one for each day of the week, uh, that kind of lifestyle, but has no thought for God. It's interesting, in Revelation 17, Babylon is likened to a prostitute. The beauty of Babylon, the seductiveness of Babylon, it, she turns out to be a hideous beast. It's the actual opposite of the children's story, isn't it? You know, where the, the, the beast turns out to be the beauty. Uh, here the beauty of the prostitute seduces people into her deathly snare and brings them to destruction. She seduces people to worship her rather than God, to spend your life pursuing the lifestyle, the Babylon lifestyle, rather than pursuing God. But it's, it's hollow, friends. Babylon is our 21st century 
Australia, isn't it? Seduces us into thinking that the good life, the script of Babylon that we're called to follow is the script that, you know, the good life is, is, is about having the latest toys, wearing the latest clothes, going to the most exotic locations on our holidays, having fame, fortune, success, the university degree, getting the kids through uni, and then, but selling your soul to Babylon to have it all. Don't be seduced. Babylon is ultimately about serving idols rather than God. And Babylon has no place in God's kingdom. It's interesting, my experience is that people don't give up being Christian by one day waking up in the morning and deciding it's not true. Most often people give up being Christian because they get sucked into the, the Babylonian script, the Babylonian life story, and it ends up sucking the life out of them. You know, there's all kinds of ways. It's the, you know, the, the promotion at work, the extra money, the extra status that, that, get, that gives you, the up in the Babylon, going up in the ranks of Babylon and makes you so tired you can't go to Bible study. You stop hearing God's words. And you're slowly seduced away from your first love until it has you ensnared. Maybe it's that relationship that uh, will take you away. You know it's not right. But you just want to go there. And uh, it sucks the life out of you. And this was the danger, I think, for the people in Zechariah's day. But it doesn't change. It's the same for us today. These visions of Zechariah are saying, don't be seduced by the idols of Babylon because there's no place in God's kingdom for the idolater. Um, now, it's an easy, easy topic to make us feel guilty about, I think, as a preacher because it's part of the, the air we breathe. It's the, the current we swim in. Um, there's a great book uh, that I've come across on this whole topic by Brian Rosner uh, called Beyond Greed. I don't know the... You've got a, it's, it's on the bookstall, is it? Oh, look, <laughs> I didn't even set that up. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you must agree there. <laughs> it's, it, it, he argues, I, I think it's really, really, really helpful, that the way to combat greed, you know, it's in our hearts, isn't it? We, and the way the whole society, you know, gears us up to be worried about our superannuation because, you know, you're not going to survive unless you're, you know, building up that nest egg that's going to get you through. And, you know, we, we're just told to be thinking about ourselves and our future and, we're, and, 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 and people use the, the fear of, uh, of what the future might hold to drive us to, to act. <laughs> Just a bit of an aside. Do you know the, the, the most frequent command in the Bible? Do you know what it might be? The most frequent command across the Testaments. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Or it's variance. Okay? Because that's what we're tempted to do, isn't it? Fear. But we've got a God who cares for us. Who knows? He's got the hairs on our heads numbered. Uh, all that. Fear not. It's, it, we've got to trust God. But, um, yeah, back to Brian Rosner. Uh, he says the best way to be combating this, this current that we swim in as Christians is to be generous as we have opportunity. Uh, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And we often take that in the negative, don't we? You know, um, if your treasure is in the share market, that's where your heart is as you watch it go up and down. Uh, as it has in recent years. But if we put it in the positive, if we flip that around, where your treasure, there your heart is, if we start putting our treasure into church, into our missionaries, into sponsoring a child overseas, then that will be where our heart is. 
as we pray for those people, as we follow the missionaries' progress, as we watch the child that we sponsor grow up. You know, you can flip it around. Where your treasure, there your heart. Well, let's put our treasure there so our hearts will follow. Very helpful, I thought. Um, so there's the book. I'm sure you get more copies if they all sell out. <laughs> uh, final vision. I think there's the challenge of, of, of what's happening to Babylon. The final vision is of the heavenly chariots in chapter 6. Um, the heavenly chariots. In this final vision, God's heavenly army subdues the nations and gives his spirit rest, is, is what we see here. Let, let's look at it. I looked up again, and there before me were the four chariots coming from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my lords? The angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going towards the north country, the one with the white horses towards the west, and the one with the dappled horses towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, Go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, Look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Again, this, this vision, I think, parallels the first vision. But uh, the difference here is we've got uh, chariots attached to these horses that go out. Again, four seems to represent the four compass points and the scope of their mission. Uh, primarily in the ancient world, chariots were the ancient equivalent of the modern tank. Okay? They were destructive military instruments of war. Um, but these seem to be Yahweh's chariots because they go out from his heavenly presence. Uh, again, it's a little bit of a puzzle, but it's, what are these two pillars? They, the pillars of bronze, it's interesting, if you look at the temple in the Old Testament, it actually had two bronze pillars at its entrance. They even had names. Uh, and the temple itself represented the, 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 the heavens, the, 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 the actual reality of the heavens where God dwelt. Uh, the, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the, the, the earthly sanctuary is a pattern of the heavenly one. Um, so I think, in a sense, what's being represented here is the presence of God. These chariots go out. One of the frequent, the most frequent way that God is described in Zechariah is the Lord of hosts or the Lord Almighty. Okay, Lord Almighty translates Lord of hosts. Hosts are the armies of God. Uh, now, Israel didn't have an army at that time. So my guess is that these are the heavenly armies that Yahweh controls. I mean, both are true. He controls all earthly armies and heavenly armies. But what we have here is the hosts of the Lord of hosts going out from heaven itself to, to finally establish God's reign on earth. The chariots are characterised as the four spirits or the four winds which move swiftly across the earth. They're going from the presence of the Lord and they go out, uh, we see in chapter six, uh, verse 6, uh, that the one with the black horses is going out towards the north country. Uh, it's literally the one with the white horses is going out after them. Uh, they're, they're not going to the west because the west is actually the sea. Uh, that's, that's someone's interpretation, but I think that's, that's not correct. There, there's two groups going out to the north because that's where the threat has come from. 
And there's another one going to the south. And there's another group of horses that's not described. And I think they're being kept in reserve. Um, but uh, that's the picture that we get. That the chariots are going out at God's command throughout the earth. The, chariot, the, the horses in the first vision were doing surveillance. These ones are actually doing the, the work of the army. Putting the nations at uh, well, uh, subduing the nations who are opposed to God. And uh, just as the world was at rest in the first vision, now we see that this picture gives, uh, 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 this vision, we see uh, that the, 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 the world is being put at rest in verse 8. Those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Which brings the visions to completion, doesn't it? That what was hoped for, how long? Well, it will happen. God will bring it about. He will, he will bring, put down all opposition to his purposes, to his kingdom, and establish his kingdom on earth. It's interesting, this imagery in the final vision is actually picked up in the book of Revelation. Can you come with me to Revelation chapter 19? Revelation chapter 19. Verse 11. Nineteen verse eleven. Uh, here's another vision. This time that John has, and he sees heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his head are, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the, the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see the imagery being picked up? This time though, it's being attributed to Christ. Christ is this rider on the horse who will finally put down all opposition to God. And I think um, just like Zechariah 6, Christ's assured victory is to give courage and strength to God's people today and to inspire the obedience that God calls us to. See, elsewhere in Zechariah, this call, this vision is to inspire repentance and faith. That's how the book begins. Come back to me. Return, and I'll return to you. It's to call people to obedience. And what we see in the New Testament is that this repentance involves, for us as Christians, holiness of living, persuading others about Christ, Caring for those in need. Repentance involves spurring one another on in love and good deeds and meeting together regularly. It involves persevering in the Christian life and giving thanks and worshipping God in reverence and awe. We see those things commanded across the New Testament. See, I think these visions of Zechariah essentially are challenging people with what God is doing in the, morning, in, in the world. Remember, I 
told you yesterday about this, this grand vision that is being held out before people and encouraging people to, to set their own agendas based on God's agenda, to live in the light of this vision. And essentially that means that there's, we're all building, but which, the question is which building project are we involved in? Because the, the energies that we put in in this life will have two radically different outcomes. There's the building of God's kingdom. The temple by which God would return to dwell in the midst of his people and, and receive blessing. Or alternatively, today we've seen there's the building houses of iniquity and wickedness. Houses that will eventually come under his judgments. Now we might wonder, why would anyone go about building a house like that? Of wickedness and iniquity. And, but remember, these are, the, these are attractive. These are attractive options. This is the, the script we're being urged to play out. Each day on our television and the magazines and the internet. That's the script that's being held out before us. The Babylon scripts. But Zechariah says not all that glitters is gold. That building, Babylon, will come crashing down on your heads. And so Zechariah wants us to get on and build God's kingdom. To have a bigger vision. To proclaim Jesus. The forgiveness that comes through him as Messiah. To live by his words. And we as Christians know so much more than even the people in Zechariah's day knew, don't we? We know his kingdom has come. The king has come. And he will come. And that's what we look forward to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who reveals your purposes to us. Father, there's so many messages that uh, are all around us. Uh, Messages um, that call us to live for a different God that call us to live for ourselves. Father, help us to see through these. Help us to see the antisocial effects that these visions have, that these, uh, this alternative has as well. And, um, and to so desire that people not be seduced away from the truth. Father, thank you for your people at Chatswood Presbyterian Church. Thank you for the love that they have for one another. Thank you for the love that they have for you. Pray that they'll be known in their community for this love as well. And that they will be able to continue to persevere, to preach Christ, to proclaim him to all all that they have opportunity to. We pray that uh, they will live in the light of your vision, your coming kingdom. And spur one another on to love and good deeds. Uh, Father, help them to persevere. Especially when things get difficult, as they do. And to, um, to keep pressing on and reminding one another of what it means to be your people. Uh, Help them to live for a different set of values than the world around about and to be known for their distinctiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.